This morning, I would like to preach to you out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We've been here before. It's been a couple years. And several of you have asked that I preach from this passage once again because it's filled with so many rich truths that I think are not only a blessing to our heart, but also a deep encouragement for every believer as we not only think about the first coming of Christ, but his second coming as well. May I remind you that from the very beginning genealogy of Matthew's gospel that documents Christ's credentials as Israel's king, we see a primary emphasis throughout that gospel on Jesus as the Messiah, the sovereign king, the one who fulfilled dozens of Old Testament prophecies. And before we even read the text, may I remind you that one of Satan's greatest strategies is to distort and discredit the word of God, to somehow dumb things down so that we no longer really see the truth that's in the word especially as it relates to the glory of Christ, whose throne on earth Satan continues to usurp. And like perhaps no other time of the year, Christmas seems to be Satan's prime time for distortion and discreditation, an opportunity to confuse people. And even many Christians have a superficial grasp of what God has revealed concerning the birth of the Messiah King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what most people believe, frankly, has much more to do with tradition or Christmas cards or even nativity scenes and popular Christmas songs than what is written in the Word of God. And we want to deal with that today. And that is especially true with respect to this fascinating story of the Magi that came from the East to worship the one who had been born King of the Jews. And so my goal this morning is to bring clarity to this passage of Scripture, which will undoubtedly raise our hearts to new levels of praise and excitement, not only with respect to Christ's first coming, but also his second coming that we anticipate. So let me read the passage to you, beginning in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in uh, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. 
And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we must ask several questions. We need to know who are these men? Where did they come from? Why did they come? How did they know where to go when they saw the star? In fact, what was this star? Something that appeared and then disappeared and then appeared again. And why could only the Magi see this star? Why couldn't Herod see it? Why couldn't the rest of the people in Jerusalem see it? The chief priests and the scribes. And then perhaps the most important question is, what does all this reveal about Jesus Christ? And how should this incredible story impact our lives? Well, folks, unless you answer these questions correctly, you will have missed the whole point of what God is communicating here. So let's endeavor to understand this. First, we must look at the context. We've got four principal characters, right? We have Herod, we have the chief priests and scribes, and we have the Magi. Well, let's talk about them for a moment. Herod is Herod the Great. He was the Roman-appointed king of the Jews. In fact, he was an Edomite. He was not even a Jew. And the Jews despised him, and he knew it. Herod was a gifted orator. He was politically very ambitious. He was a narcissist to the max, totally in love with himself. In fact, he was an evil genius. According to Josephus, quote, Herod was capable, crafty, and cruel. But Rome admired him. And the reason they did is because he was able to keep the Jews from any uprising. He was a brilliant architect. He was a brilliant builder. And his most famous project was the expansion of the second temple there in Jerusalem. Herod was also a notorious womanizer. He was ruled by his lusts. He had ten wives, if you can imagine that. And his most famous wife was Mariamne the first. She was a Jewess. And, of course, he needed to legitimize his right to reign over the Jews, so he had to have a Jewish wife, among the others. And like all tyrants, he was insanely jealous and cruel. He was paranoid of any threats to his reign. In fact, he, he basically distrusted everyone, especially the Jews, that found him to be absolutely despicable. History records numerous accounts of murders and assassinations under his reign, and ultimately he even killed his wife, Mariamne, and her mother, Alexandra, and Mariamne's two sons. In fact, five days before his death, which was approximately 4 AD, he had another son killed. Emperor Augustus said, quote, it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. 
And because he knew that no one would mourn his death when he died, he commanded that all of the noble families of Jerusalem be gathered up and killed as soon as he died. And although his wish was not carried out, it just demonstrated the, the diabolical wickedness of this fiendish megalomaniac. Now, it's fascinating, isn't it, that this is the kind of ruler that God has sovereignly put in place, this satanic ruler, one that will basically be there to receive his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not by accident. You have an insanely jealous, demonically controlled butcher. In fact, as you know, he was willing to massacre all of the little boys two years of age and under in order to protect his power. Now, like all wicked rulers, he had to have religious leaders as allies to help him control the masses. And that's where we come to the chief priests and scribe. The chief priests were basically from the priestly line of Aaron. Most of them were Sadducees. They were liberal Jews that grossly distorted the law and scripture in order to support their own political agendas. But they had considerable political and religious power. And then, of course, we have the high priest, and that was a man that was typically given that particular office by the king as an act of political appointment. Sometimes it was purchased, and if the ruler didn't like the high priest, then he would have him removed and put another one in. And, of course, the high priest provided, presided over the Sanhedrin, which consisted of 72 Jewish leaders, kind of like our Senate and Supreme Court and, and so forth combined. And then, of course, you have other categories of priests performing various functions. Most of them were Pharisees, and together they formed a, a priestly aristocracy that's loosely labeled the chief priests. Bottom line, they were corrupt politicians who disguised themselves as noble, godly men, very much like we have today with the Islamic mullahs or even the Roman Catholic bishops and priests. And then, of course, you have the scribes. Now, the scribes consisted of both Sadducees and Pharisees. They were scholars and lawyers. They knew the Old Testament law, and they were highly skilled at twisting the law. I'm glad we don't have people like that today. No? Right. They were highly skilled at twisting the law for their own personal gain. So, folks, these were Herod's henchmen, if you will. And then you have the Magi. Now, the question is, are these the Oriental kings that are so popular in the Christmas carol? Whenever I think of that, I remember as a little boy singing with some of the other little boys during the Sunday school hour, we sing the We Three Kings of Orient are. But we had our own version, men who smoked a rubber cigar. It was loaded. It exploded. Now you know where they are. And I remember getting in trouble for that. So we, we won't sing that version here. So who were these people? Vincent, a Bible scholar, says, quote, many absurd traditions and guesses respecting these visitors to our Lord's cradle have found their way into popular beliefs and Christian art. They were said to be kings and three in number. They were said to be representatives of the three families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. And therefore, one of them is pictured as an Ethiopian. 
Their names are given as Caspar, Balthasar, and Melchior. And their three skulls, amazingly enough, are said to have been found. They were found in the 12th century by Bishop Reinald of Cologne. And today they are on exhibit in a priceless casket in a great European cathedral, end quote. Now, I'm not sure what is more amazing, the fact that Bishop Reinold could recognize these three skulls after 1,200 years or people believing him. Nevertheless, that's where a lot of this comes from. By the way, folks, this just betrays a frightening gullibility that remains endemic in the world today. People will believe just about anything. Now, frankly, we know very little about the specifics of these so-called wise men mentioned here in Matthew's account, but we can piece together some very helpful information from history and from the Bible, especially from the book of Daniel, where we have a lot of light that is shed on the identity of the Magi, as well as looking at other historians, especially the ancient Greek historian Herodotus. Now, if we look at verse 2, we see they're called wise men or Magi. Now, Magi is an untranslatable word, which is merely a name for a certain tribe of people. And it's best translated Magi. And we know that they were a priestly line of people among the ancient Medes. We know that they were very skilled in astronomy, the science, and as well as astrology, which is the superstition that Satan uses to deceive people. So these two crafts were blended together as they are today. We have the 12 signs of the zodiac, right? Satan continues to use that silly stuff. And you can look at your horoscope, which is, by the way, a practice that God condemns. He presumes to define one's personality makeup and, and offer great insight into the future. It's, by the way, what God calls in the Old Testament the sin of divination, which is detestable in the eyes of God. Look at Deuteronomy 18, other passages. So the Magi were skilled in the practice of divination and sorcery. And the word magic was corrupted down through history into the word magic. We get our word magician from that, which essentially is a synonym for sorcerer. So we can conclude that these were the priestly line of descendants from a tribe of people associated with the ancient Medes. These are a very ancient people that... We, we can trace their origin all the way back to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees, where they first lived. Read about that, for example, in Genesis 12. And according to Herodotus, the Magi were a heredity priesthood tribe like the Levites in Israel. The Levites, remember, you had the Levites, one of the 12 tribes of, of Israel set apart for priestly duty. So the Medes were set apart or so the Medes set apart, I should say, the Magi. Now, we also know from history that the Magi had great political influence on four major world empires. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, which was a conglomerate empire that overtook Babylon. And even in Greece with Alexander the Great that conquered Medo-Persia. And even in the Roman Empire, they were greatly feared by the Romans which you want to keep in mind. The Magi rose to power through their demonic, occultic, astrological abilities. They were skilled in sorcery, divination, and astronomy, demon-possessed men. 
and they became the advisors of the royalty in the east, and that's why they were called the wise men. Now, it's fascinating. For example, in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 39 and verse 3, as well as verse 13, we read about Nergal Sar Ezar, the Rabmag, which refers to the chief magi who was in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. They were also the official advisors to the kings that we read about in, in, in Esther, chapter 1, in verse 13. So Satan empowered them to advise Nebuchadnezzar and other kings as well. We know that, for example, how, how Satan used them to, to inspire Nebuchadnezzar in his violent quest to conquer Judah. And we also know that a 15-year-old boy had dealings with the Magi, and his name was Daniel. You will remember he was kidnapped with a number of others, but especially three good friends, kidnapped from a royal family in Judah, deported to Babylon to be brainwashed in the Babylonian culture. There they, would, where they were required to assist with all the new Jewish prisoners in exile. And we know that Daniel rose to be a great statesman in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and even became the confidant, the confidant of, of two world empires, the confidant of kings, both the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire. And we can go to Daniel chapter 2, and there we read in verse 10 that the Magi were called Chaldeans. And in verse 27, they were called wise men, astrologers, magicians, and soothsayers. Another word for just demon-possessed fortune tellers. And you will recall that these men were unable to interpret uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and so he was going to have them killed. But then Daniel comes forward in Daniel 2, and he pleads with the king in verse 24, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went on to say, I will declare the interpretation of the king. And you will remember then he goes on to, to tell the king not only what the dream was, but the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar then made him master over the Magi. The text says the king appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. So these men owed Daniel their life. Being their new leader and life savior, Daniel had their undivided attention, and undoubtedly he taught them about Jehovah God and the coming Messiah and the old, all of the Old Testament prophecies. And undoubtedly the wise men who came to worship Jesus would have been very familiar with Old Testament prophecy. We know they were. They were familiar with Daniel's explanation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream where God revealed to him the successive stages of Gentile world domination that will exist throughout world history. The Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greece, Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire. And in astounding detail, Daniel prophesied the Messiah that would one day come and rule the world in glory from his throne in Jerusalem. And you can go to Daniel, for example, in just chapter 11 alone. There are over 100 prophecies that were fulfilled precisely, literally. So amazing that some skeptics believe they were written by a later writer who merely recorded events from his own day. And if you look at Daniel's prophecy, 
You can see the prophecy in chapter 9 of the 70 weeks. The 70 weeks of years, 490 years. If we had time, we would look at that. 490 years were prophesied before the Messiah would establish the long-awaited kingdom for which Daniel prayed. In Daniel 9, verse 25, we read, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks of years, or 483 years. And we know historically, as they would have known, according to Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, that King Artaxerxes issued the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem in 445 B.C. So by the time Jesus was born, the 70 weeks and 60 weeks had been accomplished. 69 weeks, 483 years had elapsed. So it's time for the Messiah, the Prince, to appear. The Magi would have been well acquainted acquainted with the Old Testament prophets. They would have been acquainted with Haggai and Zechariah, both of whom came out of the Persian Empire, prophets who lived during the time of Cyrus, when Cyrus freed the captives from Israel to go back and resettle their homeland, and they, they returned. Haggai and Zechariah returned with them, and they gave their prophecies about Messiah's return to Jerusalem. They would have been familiar, for example, with Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 2, beginning in verse 10. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah in his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. While those things point to ultimately his second coming, they weren't aware of any of that. All they knew is that the Messiah was going to come. It's time and he's going to come to Jerusalem. They would have also been aware of Esther. Remember Xerxes, the, the king of, of Persia, made her his queen. And on and on it goes. And frankly, folks, there is absolutely no ambiguity in the Old Testament prophecies. The Messiah would come as king of the Jews and establish a kingdom on earth in fulfillment to the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. And it was time for this to happen. Now, hang on to that context. We also know that the Magi were very powerful. In fact, in that day, and even before that day, no Persian was ever allowed to become king except for two conditions. Number one, that man had to master the scientific and religious practice and disciplines of the Magi, which included astronomy, math, agriculture, architecture, natural history, and astrology. And secondly, and this is very important, they had to be approved of and crowned by the Magi. All the judicial and kingly offices were controlled by the Magi. 
The wisdom of the Magi was called, quote, the law of the Medes and the Persians, Esther 1.19, Daniel 6.15, and other passages. And, of course, they specialized in dream interpretation. So if I can wrap some of this up, it's fascinating that in the sovereignty of God, 600 years before Jesus was born, our sovereign God, who has ordained the end from the beginning, used Daniel and his other prophets to prepare Gentile kingmakers for the arrival of the king. Now, a little more context. And here, as they say, the plot thickens. We go back to Matthew 2. We know that Rome was afraid of the Eastern Empire. Across the vast Arabian desert loomed that great Parthian Empire, the land of the Medes and the Persians and Babylon. And they were violent enemies. In fact, they fought in 63, 55, and 40 B.C. And guess where they always fought? Along the coast of the Mediterranean. There in the land of Syria, Jordan, Israel, Palestine, and so forth. In fact, Israel was considered kind of no man's land between two great powers. And it's also important to know that the Romans especially feared and despised the Magi, the sorcerers, these astrologers. In fact, Philo of Rome, who was a Jewish philosopher from Alexandria, said of them, quote, they are vipers, they are scorpions, and they are venomous creatures. Now, at the time of Christ's birth, there was a ruling body in the eastern Parthian Persian Empire called the Magistoni, and they were composed totally of Magi. And their duty was to make kings. And in 2 BC, right before Jesus is born, their king, whose name was Phraates IV, was poisoned by an Italian concubine who had borne him a son and whom she wanted to take over the throne. So guess what? When Jesus is born, they're looking for a new king. The Eastern Empire's looking for a new king. A new king that would help them conquer Rome. So let's put all this in perspective as we marvel at the providence of God as he orchestrates the events of history to accomplish his purposes. We have an insanely jealous puppet king that the people disguise, that the people despise, and we suddenly see a group of Persian kingmakers coming in to Jerusalem. Are you beginning to get the scene in your mind? Now, folks, these weren't just three dudes on some camels. Their customary mounts were white Persian steeds. And typically they were protected by a large escort of soldiers, sometimes as many as a thousand. So these kingmakers are not going to travel this great distance. And by the way, it would have taken at least six weeks to maybe two months for them to get to Jerusalem. They're not going to travel through all of that territory unescorted. They would have been accompanied by not only soldiers, but numerous servants. This would have required a large caravan to pack all of their tents, all of the food for their animals, all of their own food and so forth. Now, can you imagine these guys coming into Jerusalem with their pointed sorcery hats and their flowing robes and 
in this caravan and you've got a mounted group of Persian cavalrymen with them. And they're asking the question, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Oh, my goodness. And folks, here's where it almost gets humorous. Superstitious Herod, I'm sure here's the word star. In Greek, by the way, it is astar, austere. It could be better pronounced austere. And, and it could be translated star, but it means a blazing forth of light. And he probably thinks it's a falling star or a comet, which to them would have been some kind of an omen that predicted a time to depose of a king. That's how they thought in those days. So kings lived in constant fear, especially a guy like Herod. Plus, they're asking king of the Jews. And and, and this adds to the humor of the passage of verse 3. It says, and when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Troubled means to quake, to shake, to stir up, to throw into confusion. And by the way, to make it even more funny, Herod's troops were out on a mission during this time, so they're vulnerable. Now, what do wicked men do when they feel threatened? Well, they angrily scheme against God and consult with emissaries of Satan. And that's what they did. He, he goes to the chief priests and the scribes, verses 4 through 8, and gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And he quotes, goes on to quote Micah 5, 2. It's interesting, in verse 4, began to inquire. In the, in the original language, the grammar says that they're constantly asking this. They're going around to everybody, where is he, this born king of the Jews? So now this puts Herod into a search and destroy mission to find this child, whatever it takes. Now, all of that is by way of introduction, a long introduction. The rest of it won't be near that long. But I want to break down this text for you in two simple categories. We're going to see light for the king makers and darkness for the king haters. Okay, so let's examine this passage given this historical context. First of all, light for the king makers, verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, In other words, wow, look at this. That's what the word means. Look at this. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Folks, these men would have known about Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49.10 that the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh is is what we call a cryptogram or a secret code for the word Messiah. The one who is also called the lion of the tribe of Judah. As John tells us in Revelation 5, 5. And remember now, undoubtedly, these were also truths that Daniel and the other prophets had written about. So again, 600 years before all of this happens, God in his sovereign grace reaches into the hearts of Magi in Nebuchadnezzar's court and puts Daniel in place. Undoubtedly, he would have told them about these things. They would have also been aware of the prophecy in Numbers 24, verse 17, 
There we read, a star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. A star in the Hebrew, a kashav. Not a material star, but it means a blazing forth of light. And it was used as a symbol of splendid dignity and power that will come from the loins of Jacob. And who is this one? Well, it's, it's the one who will have a, a scepter that shall rise from Israel. And all of the rabbis and all through the Old Testament, you know, this is a reference to the Messiah. They would have been aware of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 60 and verse 2, where we read, But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Oh, child of God, don't miss this. They were coming to worship the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And Jesus said of himself in Revelation 22 and verse 16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Now, in the miracle of divine providence, we see all of these things working together. These kingmakers are coming and they see some kind of blazing light. They see something supernatural. The question is, what is it? Well, everyone knows it's, it's a star, right? I mean, that's what you see on television. That's what you see on the Christmas cards. That's what you see in the nativity scenes. Folks, if you ever tried following a star, I challenge you to do so. The nearest star to the earth, I checked this out, is the sun. And that's 93 million miles away. And the outside portion of the sun is 7 million degrees Fahrenheit. Try following that to where someone lives. Moreover, it's intriguing, isn't it, that Herod and the others in Jerusalem had not seen the austere in the east. In fact, in verse 7, they had to ask the Magi where it appeared. It says, Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. Appeared as fino in the original language, and it means to flash or to shine forth like lightning. When did you see this, this, this blazing light flash forth? That's what he's asking. He understands that it's not some celestial body millions of miles away up in the heavens. And isn't it also curious, why would the Magi go west to Jerusalem when they saw this brilliant light shining in the east? The answer is because they knew the meaning of what they saw. They understood the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And it's fascinating that later in verse 9, this blazing forth of supernatural light that they see in the east suddenly reappears. And it leads them directly to the house where the Messiah is staying with his mother and father. Well, it's hardly a star as we think about it. By the way, as a footnote, Jesus by that time was anywhere between three months and two years old. According to verse 16, we know that Herod ascertained from the Magi the child's age, so he killed all of the males two years and younger. Now, folks, this is very different from, again, what we typically see in nativity scenes where the wise men are, are hovering over uh, an infant in a manger, and, and, you, and you've got Santa and the reindeer a few feet away with the Grinch that stole Christmas sneaking up behind Frosty the Snowman who's waving at everybody wearing a Make America Great Again hat, you know. I mean, th this is very different, right? But this is, this is what we see happening here. 
Beloved, what the Magi, Magi saw was not a luminous sphere of plasma millions of miles away, held together by gravity that shines due to thermonuclear fusion of hydrogen. What they saw was an austere, a brilliant blazing forth of light, a shining forth of light. But I want you to notice, it's not any shining, it is his austere. It's a possessive genitive in the original language. It means it belongs to him. It's something that belongs to Christ. It's his blazing forth. That's what they saw. And we can't be totally dogmatic here, but I'm convinced that what they saw was the Shekinah glory of the living God. A foretaste of the sign of the Son of Man that will appear in the sky that Jesus describes in Matthew 24. You remember when all of the lights of heaven will one day be turned out. No one will miss his second coming. That glorious light of the divine presence that allows sinful man to see God in all of his glory. The same light that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. This was the same blazing forth that, that symbolized the Messiah in Numbers 24 that I just read, a star, a blazing forth, shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. In other words, a ruling king will rise from Israel, a reference to the Messiah. Now, let me remind you that God, who is spirit in Scripture down through history, would materialize himself in brilliant, dazzling, ineffable light. A manifestation of his glory. Beloved, this is the effulgence of his glory that I believe that they saw. God describes his Shekinah throughout Scripture. Remember, it was that glory that blazed forth in the burning bush with Moses. And again, on Mount Sinai, when Joseph begged him to show him his glory, and he could only show him his backside. It was his Shekinah that led the children of Israel through the wilderness, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Remember, it was the Shekinah that hovered between the cherubim over the, the, the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later in the temple. It was the Shekinah glory of God that appeared to the shepherds. The Jews hadn't seen it for 400 years. And suddenly it appears to the shepherds taking care of the sacrificial sheep for the temple. And there, remember, they saw the glory of the Lord and the angelic messenger announced the birth of our Lord and Savior. It is his austere. It's the same Shekinah that blinded Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. It's the same Shekinah that we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the Lord Jesus Christ peeled back some of his flesh and allowed the effulgence of his glory to blaze forth, terrifying Peter, James, and John. He said his clothing became white and gleaming. His face was like the sun. And folks, it will be the sign of the Son of Man when he returns again in power and great glory. It will be the lamp of the Lamb, as John tells us in Revelation 21, verse 23, that will illumine the new Jerusalem. When he came the first time, isn't it interesting? Only a select few could see it. But when he returns again, the effulgence of his glorious presence will streak across the darkened skies 
for every man to see. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 27, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. When you see lightning, everybody sees it, right? So the grace of God drew these Persian kingmakers to the Messiah. To the Messiah. Now, of course, this would have been utterly reprehensible to the Jews to think that God would somehow extend his mercy to Gentiles, especially pagan sorcerers, the elite rulers from Persia. And yet these magi coming to Christ is at least a partial fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 65, verse one, where we re- where we read. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I to a nation which did not call on my name. And he went on to say of Israel, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face. A passage, by the way, that Paul quotes in Romans 10 verses 20, 10 through 20 or 20 through 21 to describe his, his fellow Jews that were so rebellious. So again, folks, here we see the power of sovereign grace that's able to reach down and pierce the darkest heart with the light of God's glorious presence and draw undeserving sinners into the light of his grace. Verse 2 Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Again, verse 3, when Herod, the king, heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. No doubt they're all saying, what is going on here? We've got Persian kingmakers coming here to worship a newborn king of the Jews. And they claim that they've seen this, this blazing light. We haven't seen it. Well, it was light for the king makers, but let's secondly, in closing, look at darkness for the king haters. Obviously, Herod knew of the promised Messiah that would one day come, and he rightly feared that that day had arrived in a way that he could have never imagined. Notice in verse 4, And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Amazing, isn't it? A ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. These dear friends were the very words that God spoke to David in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2 when he originally enthroned him over all the tribes of Israel at Hebron. And so Herod and the religious elite of Israel knew what was going on, and they were terrified. What's amazing is instead of humbling themselves, they refused, and they did not worship him. Instead, verse 7, Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. Well, why would he do that secretly? Because he didn't want anyone to know what he suspected to be true. Nor did he want anyone to know the nefarious nature of of his plan to destroy his divine rival. He needed to know the exact date of when they first saw that light so he could approximate the age of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he could kill him. 
By the way, as I think about this, what, a, what an amazing picture of man's high treason against the Most High God. So Herod responds in anger and fear. Verse 8, he says, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Obviously, he is disingenuous with that request. Folks, Herod's plan from the start was to circumvent the purposes of God. That's what ungodly men always endeavor to do. But like all godless rulers who reject God, their schemes will ultimately fail. And Herod here is really a picture of all of the Jewish people who would one day join him in their refusal to worship the Messiah. And they would say together, we do not want this man to reign over us. What a contrast to the Magi. Notice what happens sometime later in verse 9. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. Notice it says they had seen in the east. Not followed from the east, but they had seen. It was a signal. It was not necessarily a GPS. But now it appears again. It's before them. It comes over to where Jesus is. And isn't it interesting that only a selected few are able to see the light? Those who are somehow humbled by the grace of God, but those who remained hardened in their indifference, in their unbelief, they could not see the light of Christ. And that continues to this very day, even with some of you here in this room. So once again, the light of grace reappears, and now it leads the men right to the Savior. And seeing the glory of God naturally produces inexpressible joy for all who love Him. Verse 10, and when they saw the blazing forth of light, they re Joiced exceedingly with great joy. Why would they do that? Well, I think we all know they saw God once again working on their behalf. Leading them to the Messiah King. And later, Jesus would declare in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. John tells us in chapter 1 and verse 14, And when the Word, when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 11, we read that they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped Him. By the way, notice they did not worship Mary, a bone that sticks in the throat of Roman Catholics who worship her today. They fell on their faces and worshipped Him. They prostrated themselves in lowly worship, which is how they would always approach an Eastern monarch. And opening their treasures, they presented to Him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Their hearts are overflowing with joy. Gold, of course, being that precious metal, a symbol of nobility and royalty. And frankincense, frankincense being an extremely expensive incense, with a fabulous fragrance. By the way, we know in the Old Testament, it was, sport, it was stored in a special chamber in the temple, and it was sprinkled on the grain offerings. And it symbolized the people's passionate desire to offer unto the Lord sacrifices that were pleasing to Him. 
And then, of course, myrrh being a very costly perfume. Myrrh was mixed with wine, you will recall, as an anesthetic and offered to Jesus on the cross. It was also mixed with other spices when somebody died to prepare a body for burial. Well, folks, in closing, I must ask you, which category do you find yourself? Are you with the king makers or the king haters? And the answer depends upon how you have responded to the light of the gospel of Christ. Again, I am the light of the world, Jesus says. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. And Peter says, the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, I want to close there. I've got some other passages, but I'm out of time. I just want to simply say, folks, examine your heart. Do you worship the king? Are you praying as Jesus asked you to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because, dear friends, here at Christmas we celebrate his first coming. But know full well that he is coming again. Folks, Jesus is coming again. Amen? He's not coming again in obscurity, but in unimaginable glory. He's not coming again in humility, but as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is not coming again as one who will seek and save, but one who will judge and rule. And the question is, how do you see him? Do you worship him today as your savior and king? Because if you do not, a day will come when you will bow before him. But not as your savior and king, but as your judge and executioner. So I plead with you as a minister of the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved this day before it's too late. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that that emerge from this text. And we can see once again your sovereign hand orchestrating all of the events of history and your sweet providence to accomplish purposes that we can't even imagine and to think that we are somehow a part of all of this solely because of your grace. Oh, Father, these truths are too wonderful for us to even imagine. But what we do know, we celebrate and we give you praise, especially here during this Christmas season. I pray especially for those that may not know you as Savior for whatever reason, They want to see you in some other light. Oh, Father, only by the power of your spirit can you break through that darkness and deliver them. And I pray that you will, that they too might see the light of Christ and worship him. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.